0: You are listening to WIN-WIN, a podcast brought to you by WIN, women in innovation. In each episode, inspiring female innovators share stories of succeeding against the odds in a male-driven industry. Their experiences come from the startup world, innovation consultancies, and innovation departments in Fortune 500 companies. I'm your host, Zoya Kozakov, brand strategy consultant and global marketing lead at Win. When you think about creating new futures, innovation in human health is fundamental. Illumina is a global leader pioneering incredible technology that allows the exploration of human health by looking at DNA and the genome. At the intersection of biology and tech, Illumina helps us read and understand genetic variation. This means the answers to why cancer cells mutate or how we prevent the next outbreak of a puzzling disease. Mary Sharon Owens is the head of Global Creative Studio at Illumina. She is transforming this multi-billion dollar company and how it communicates, leveraging frameworks across brand, creative, digital, and infrastructure. Prior to Illumina, Mary Sharon led clients from Fortune 50 companies and early stage ventures to leverage brand as a lens for corporate strategy as Executive Director of Business Transformation Consulting at RGA. Preceding RGA, Mary Sharon built an in-house creative agency as Senior VP of Global Marketing at Bank of America and Account Director and Creative Strategist at Target. The rest of her resume includes leading product management at venture-backed startups and a company you probably heard of, Microsoft. Today on Win-Win, we dive deeper into Mary Sharon's unique perspective on building a career outside the box. Hello and welcome to the Win-Win Podcast. We are so happy to have you here today. Hi, Zoe. It's good to be here. Um, so we can just uh, dive right in. But before we dive into your current role as head of global creative studio at alumna, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and where you're from and uh, what you actually call home?
1: Sure. So um, my background, uh, I feel like it's kind of zigzagged across, you know, some disciplines, domains and industries. Um, which I'm really grateful for. And I think that even includes, you know, being born and raised in Minnesota, uh, two houses down from a farm, going to school in Boston, you know, then kind of going from West Coast to East Coast, back to the West Coast right now throughout my career. And I think I'm just really grateful for those experiences because I think it gives you a set of hybrid skill sets, um, both in terms of just your, your character strengths, your personality, your ability to kind of interact with other people, um, but also just learning new technical skills, too. So I think when it comes to my my professional career, you know, even back when I was at Northeastern, you know, there was a mandatory co-op program in the School of Business. And so, you know, I had a, a co-op in accounting, realized I didn't want to do accounting for a career. Then I went for a startup in South San Francisco. And that's really kind of where my love of tech and startups really came to life, and I ended up doing my final co op at Microsoft, which then took me to Microsoft full time in product management. And while I was there, I primarily focused on early stage ventures. Um, so you'd be given, you know, a couple million dollars, and you would have six months, and you had to achieve the objectives. And so it was a little different than like Office or Windows, which were a little more established. At the time, but again, it just kind of kept fueling this love I had for building things that were new and seeing if it would work and seeing if people would actually buy them. And so um, that took me to Microsoft's R&D Center, which then took me to joining a real venture backed startup uh, called American Well at the time, which was at the frontier of telemedicine and it it's actually still around. And I just, you know, I remember like our first product's name was um dot com, and so it it brings me back looking where telemedicine is now. But I think so much of my career has just been around putting forth technology that's not the world's not quite ready for it yet. But you kind of know in your gut that it will be. After being in high tech for so long. Omnichannel hit, you know, the whole idea of omnichannel marketing, technology, software ecosystems started to become a real thing in retail and e-commerce. And Target um, Corporation was pulling in people from high tech to work um, in Target on brand and on creative. And that's really where my love of creative started and just kind of understanding how to use brand as a lens for business um, and almost like a set of decision criteria for making everything from marketing campaigns to capital investments. And, you know, I think it works. You know, there's a reason why people love to buy toilet paper and tie from Target. Um, and I think that word love is really earned and it's really by design. And so I kind of took that love of tech and creative into MedDevice. Um, for a couple of years, I set up a creative studio at Bank of America and a $14 billion tech organization, which was a really fun transformation. That brought me to RGA, where I helped stand up the business transformation practice there. And I got to work with some of the most brilliant creative and analytical and design minds, I think, in the industry. And that is ultimately what brought me to Illumina, where I am standing up a creative studio. And our focus really now is just about leveraging creativity and digital and brand to advance the positive progress of genomics to really make it useful for all and to invite more leaders into the field of genomics.
0: That is one heck of a career trajectory. So when you look at client side versus agency side, where do you think more innovation happens and how do you go about evaluating that?
1: Oh, that's a great question because I have certainly bounced in between. I actually think innovation can be found anywhere. You know, I really believe that innovation is just really taking the brilliance of the diversity around you when it matters the most. And so you can find innovation in startups and in early stage ventures. And I think you can also find it within sustainable businesses, right? So for example, you know, Bank of America is a a fortune 10 bank, right? You know, it's a huge financial system. If anything happens to Bank of America, the world's financial systems will literally be in crisis. And so it would be easy to assume that it's a highly regulated environment and things have to go in a certain order. But I think even within a company like that, there's so much opportunity to think differently, bring new ideas to the table. And when you bring an iBanker, a creative director, a software engineer, and someone who's brilliant at client services and put them in a room together and give them a challenge to deliver something that distinguishes the bank from other companies, that's innovation. And I think it's just as innovative as coming up you with know, online care in 2009. You know what I mean?
0: Do you believe that there are any sort of hard or soft skills that, that have been important to not just you know, everybody's success, but that have been important to yours?
1: Yeah, I think what's important, I think some of it comes down to the speed of which you achieve that value, right? So I think um, when you're in consulting, you're working so fast and you're working with other people that are working at the same speed. And it's all about coming up with the best idea based on the research, based on what the competitive landscape is telling you and what you really believe your client needs to win. And so I think that the hard and soft skill there is being able to pull that brilliance out of so many different people at a round table in a short period of time, right? So again, you're working with creative directors, you're working with MBAs, you're working with um, engineers, UX designers, and everyone is bringing in a different perspective to the table. And it's your job to kind of inspire people to think about this bigger image of the future that you are painting with them and have them weigh in on how that image could become more vivid, more interesting, more of a competitive advantage. I think that in the business side, on like the more corporate side, it's about taking that image and it's almost like you're making it consumable for people who may not have been there when the idea was formed, people who may be overwhelmed, right? I mean, sometimes coming into a room with a really flashy deck and a brilliant idea, it's just overwhelming to people who feel they're so busy. They would love to be part of the innovation team. They would love to have the innovative ideas, but they don't have time, or at least they don't feel that they have time. And so the way that you present your ideas in corporate is a little different because the aim is to get people to really believe that they are part of this idea too. It's not just in consulting where you're like, this is the idea and it's perfect. I think in the business world, the hard and soft skills are active listening, right? So it's presenting your idea in a way where it doesn't feel like it's baked, it feels like it's a starting point. It's a prototype and people really need to authentically believe that you want them to weigh in. And I think that the more you can convince people that their point of view, even if it seems like they're, they're on the facilities team and you're activating a new brand and they're like, okay, well, I just, I just do facilities. You're like, actually our environment is a huge part of brand activation. And it's really important to get your perspective you know, I think people have an uncanny ability to recognize intent. And so if they feel that you really want their opinions, you will get them. And that idea will get better and it will ultimately get to market. And it'll probably look more like a masterpiece than, you know, just kind of like a deck with a really good idea on it.
0: You know, assuming that you now have a very, very prominent seat at the table, what were some challenges in, in getting that voice heard, getting that seat at the table along the way?
1: You know, I think some of the challenges come from not really fitting into a box. So even if I look at most of my career, I haven't had a job description since, oh gosh, probably 10 plus years ago, I've created my jobs. And I think that in doing that, it's a longer conversation, but it's a conversation that's always about your value, right? So when I was at Target, for example, and I was on the technology strategy and innovation team, The creative studio was looking for people to help them with tech, right? So Target is exceptional at branding. And and back at this point, the Target catalog, the baby catalog, the wedding catalogs, I mean, what Target was doing with print and traditional out-of-home advertising was exceptional. Digital was just a new way of working, and it was somewhat intimidating, right? So they... They wanted someone with a digital background, but I didn't know anything about creative, not in the way that I understand it now. And so by explaining like, look, I don't know a lot about you know advertising, but I do know a lot about software development and I know a lot about startups and I know how to take $4 and invest it into something that will become a multimillion dollar business. And so I think it's just like when you're articulating your value to people, it needs to be presented in a way where they really understand how that value is meaningful for them and will very clearly help them achieve their business objectives. And so I think when you do that, that's kind of how you can forge your own path to get to the table so that by the time you're at the table, the bigger round table, right? You're a little sturdier and you have more of that confidence because confidence comes from knowledge, but you're there because of the value. And the reason I say that is because I think sometimes you can have a certain job title and have a certain career that's very deep, right? Like, you've only worked in corporate strategy. Like you went from corporate strategy to management consulting back to corporate strategy. And that can, that's another way of doing it. But I think that for me, um, the, both the win and the challenge has been, it's kind of hard to put me into a box. And so I kind of have to create my own seat at the table. And I think that I've been creating my own seat at the table, even back when I was a senior manager.
0: So tell me about a time when you received a no trying to create your box or trying to do something in your career, and and suddenly that changed the course of your life, or at in the very least, the course of your career.
1: I've been told no, and I and I'm not saying this with hyperbole, probably every day. And I kind of have this belief that if you're putting forth an idea and there's not a risk that you might actually be fired for it, it's probably not a good enough idea. And I know that sounds dramatic. But I think that's actually where a lot of my value comes from is that the ideas that I'm putting forth are pretty provocative. I mean even when you look at when you look at the idea of building a creative studio within a genomics company, right? Some people would say, well, it's it's STEM, right? It's science. It's the absolute truths. Creativity is all about literally not having the right answer. Like there are no right answers in creativity in the way that they are in the hard sciences. And so some people would say there's really no place for that and I would say there's This is literally the place for that because if we can start to bring in designers and creatives and people who can take the science and not only design more conversations around the science so that the science is more understood outside the echo chamber of genomics and STEM and it's more understood by the population, which ultimately will help put us in a place where people understand the value of testing, they will start to advocate for genetic testing, The minute that one of their children is diagnosed with a rare undiagnosable disease, they will start to advocate for genetic testing when they're diagnosed with cancer is the first thing. That's really meaningful. And so I think that when you're told no, I think the first thing you want to do is just understand where is that no coming from? Because everything's a discussion. And sometimes when they say no, it's it's fair because it's not a good idea yet. But I think it's just always about coming back down to the value and being able to work with someone and say, okay, well, tell me what it is that that is making you say no. And okay, okay, well, help me unpack that further. And then you're thinking, oh, okay, well, actually, this is my response to that. I'm so glad you said that. And I think together you just sharpen the idea until it's a really good idea.
0: So, I did want to ask more about Illumina, of course. And so, uh, for those who don't know, you worked with Illumina on the agency side. So, as part of your work with RGA Business Transformation, and you delivered their new master brand and ultimately their go to market strategy. So, now you head up Global Creative Studio there. So, going further into it, what does a creative studio at a global leading genomics company look like?
1: Oh gosh, it is uh, very colorful and very bright, vibrant and very diverse. Um, so we are standing up a studio that is essentially comprised of verbal designers, visual designers, um, MBAs, management consultants, PhDs, um, journalists. Um, we literally had a woman who had a PhD from MIT and was also had written for the LA Times. Mm-hmm. And so we have brilliant software designers. Um, we have people who have built incredible design systems. We basically think about the broader corporate strategy for the company, right? So when you think about the role that genomics plays in the clinical space, it's everything from research, right, to the application of genomic testing on the consumer side. And so within that spectrum, there are a lot of places that you are building your ecosystem against, like literally the ecosystem of our products. When you think about the sequencers that we built, the software that is built within the sequencers to help the data flow and become more relevant to the application of data down to like literally the way that the boxes look and the way that the software is designed. And that needs to match our website and all of our other interactive experiences, because anytime that someone's interacting with Illumina, it needs to feel uniquely Illumina and it needs to deliver on that act of purpose, which is fundamentally to drive the positive progress of genomics to make it useful for all. And so when you think about the world of design and advertising, whether it's on the agency side or the corporate side, there's kind of that spectrum of novelty to strategy. And with every experience and opportunity, you have an opportunity to think about where do we want to fall on that spectrum in order to get more people into our ecosystem and keep them there, right? And help them have our customers even join our ecosystem and broaden and build it with us. So within our Creative Studio, we do everything from the omnichannel marketing campaigns, which are pretty straightforward. To like, you know, when a product launches, there's a campaign about that. There's industry events. There's really, really cool swag. And then we also do, um, we're working very, very closely with our product design teams on experience design. And we're in the process of redesigning Illumina.com and the interactive experiences that are all around it. So a lot of what we're doing, I would say, is fundamental ecosystem development where you're thinking of a touchpoint and a consumer and you're thinking about the value within, and then from that value, you are building experiences around it, leveraging design in all forms to do so.
0: So then, how do you believe that the creative studio accelerates innovation for the field of genomics? I think it's just making genomics more
1: accessible for all. So I think if you have if you come from a background in molecular biology you understand genomics, right? You understand the language of it. You understand how it can be used. You understand the power of it. Um, I think even with COVID this year, right? I literally remember getting a text. I was in New York and I got a text from one of my colleagues and said, you know, we're trying to get one of our boxes over to Wuhan, China. There's this bug that everyone's freaking out about. And I, at the time there was no talk of coronavirus, there was no mention of COVID, but we were at the front lines of this thing, trying to sequence this bug and try to understand its entire genome in order for us to get ahead of it and start to understand what it was doing within the human genome. And then ultimately, of course, that's the information that you need to get to a vaccine. And so again, within the world of genomics, everyone understands that. I think that when, you know, I was talking to friends in New York and doctors at New York Presbyterian, they're at the front lines of this thing from a completely different perspective and understanding what was happening with the science was a tremendous comfort, because this was this was an overwhelming experience for everyone, certainly the healthcare system. But knowing that science was working hand in hand with tech, knowing that we were able to get more information on people's health than we ever have in history. I mean, the last time we've had a pandemic, we didn't have technology at the scale, we didn't have data architecture at the scale, we didn't have communication channels at the scale. So, getting so much information about humans, this bug, how they were interacting, um, was it's as important to get to a vaccine as it is to communicate to other people what's happening. So design plays a big role in that. And the creative studio played a role in helping to get the word out and helping to understand what we were doing with COVID, what was happening with COVID, how these research institutions were sequencing and what all that, what all that really meant. So I think there's a lot around designing conversations where genomics doesn't feel like it's this kind of ethereal thing that only scientists and technologists understand. And I think it's also inspiring more people to get into the field of genomics who do come from arts and come from the design world and from the business world to get into this field and help us start building it into something that's more consumable and has a broader application for all.
0: Amazing. So as you sit on the leadership team of this multi-billion dollar company and you are in the room pitching these things, having these conversations, how many women would you say are in the room around you? (laughs) You know, it depends,
1: right? So if we're talking about the product and the development side of the house, it's, I'm often one of the only women in the room um, and certainly one of the only women of color. So I would say often, whether it's at Illumina or just within the field of genomics or, or quite frankly, even on the agency side, I'm often the only woman of color at my pay grade which is disappointing. You know, I think that's disappointing. And it's also a little daunting when you think about the weight that comes with that. So, but I think it just comes back to, and I really do mean this, it comes back to me being 23 years old and, you know, working in a startup. And Bill Gates is like, I have this idea. I want to see how it works in the wild. Your team has $40 million. You guys have six months to do it. They stack ranked a team. And we, there were no blueprints. There was no path. There was no brief. It was literally that. And we had to go figure out a brand new service and bring it to market. And I think in the process of doing that, you're constantly just talking to people and helping them understand what your idea is, asking them to sharpen your ideas with you. And then together you're bringing bigger and better ideas to market. So I still take that very similar approach. You know, I I have a hunch. My intuition tells me something. My wisdom tells me something. My experience tells me something. And I start texting. I start picking up the phone I pull up with someone at a bar over drinks, socially distanced now, and I'm just like, hey, what do you think of this idea? Because this is what I think. What do you think? And I really do believe that you'll always get to the right ideas if you take that approach of it's a sharpening exercise. It's not about pitching your idea and hoping that someone says yes. It's always a sharpening exercise because I believe that everything is a prototype Brands are prototypes, products are prototypes, your business model is a prototype, your organization is a prototype. And if you treat it that way, I think it helps get people out of this mode of like, was it a good idea or a bad idea? Do you say yes or do you say no? Will you pay this much for it? Or will you pay? It's just like things don't have to be so binary, but you can still be structured and methodical in terms of the order of operations that you're getting the information you need to get something to market
0: statistically, you've made it against the odds. What impact do you think you would have had if you did have role models in the room that looked like you, that sounded like you, that were, you know, maybe of color or the same gender as you? What value do you think that would have brought to you along the way?
1: Um, oh gosh, so many things. So many things to unpack with that question. I think what's most draining about being the only one in the room is that you feel like you have this constant propeller that is running and draining your energy because when you're the only one, you're often misunderstood. And what happens with you know, this whole concept of microaggressions, right? You're, for example, you're in a meeting and you think you're there to talk about product or your business model or your go-to-market strategy, and then something happens that completely throws you off. So for example, I remember being in high tech and, um, some folks have heard this story before, but I've been in high, you know, sitting high tech and I was very senior for my age. And, um, I was the only woman of color, probably on the entire campus, not even just within my team and a vendor had screwed up and this vendor reported up through me and they needed to fix it. And they had 24 hours to fix it or they were going to be in breach of the contract. So I pulled up a meeting and went, you know, 8am next day. and was like, you know, I need to understand what your solution is. I'm the only woman on the mail thread. I'm the only woman in the meeting request. And it's me in a room with 12 guys. And I'm like, what are we waiting for? And one of them says, well, we're waiting for Mary Sharon Owens to get here. And I kind of looked around like, (laughs) and I just said, what would make you think I'm not Mary Sharon Owens? And I can't even tell you how many times things like that have happened. I've been in meetings where um, people have walked up to me and thanked me so much for the printouts. Uh, people have walked up to me and thanked me for like stapling, like pieces of paper because it was such a huge help. Like they've literally just assumed that I was the admin when actually it's it's my meeting and my team. And when that happens, you're so shaken because it's not it's not about being insulted. It's about the bigger issue, which means despite all logical factors. It is so inconceivable for people to believe that someone who looks like me could possibly be the person with that title. And that really it shakes you to your core because the moment that that happens in real time, you start to think about the impact that that has in the world. You start to think about why African Americans aren't given venture capital, why women aren't given venture capital, right? You know, they have those staggering statistics out there. I think it was something like 84 billion in venture funding recently. And only 2% of that is going to women and a fraction of a percent of that is going to African-Americans. And you start, when you're in these moments, you start to connect those dots and you start to realize like, gosh, I went to an Ivy League school. I worked at Microsoft in the Gates era. I have done so many things. I've actually worked in ventures that are still around. And despite all of that, It's inconceivable for you to think that I'm leading a team. So I think that's the hardest part. And so in order to prevent those scenarios, right, because you're trying to always prevent those scenarios, because I have a large team even at Illumina, right? My job is to be a leader. I have to recalibrate in real time and stay focused and kind of like bury those emotions. But that fan is always running. And so when I talk about this energy drain, if there had been another woman of color in the room where I could have looked at her. Kind of like, can you believe that? Or even better, she would have said, What makes you think that's not Mary Sharon? Like, that's the whole power of like having allies, right? This whole idea of intersectional leadership and allies is when you see someone else get taken up by a microaggression and you know that in that moment they're stunned and they don't know what to say, you have the strength to speak out on their behalf. And so I think that's the importance of having representation, but I think it's also just the importance of having allies. And just a general sense of awareness that when those things are happening, you need to step in and help that person. And you need to change uh, the social dynamic, like one conversation at a time. So what has gotten you through those moments throughout your career? You know, what's interesting is I think for many years, my focus was trying to be a persona, almost like to combat what people might think. Right. So I used to straighten my hair um, you know, growing up in Minnesota, I had a very Midwest, uh, you know, I, it was a very Midwest accent, probably not an accent that you would associate with a black woman, um, which I know because I can't tell you how many conference calls, before there were Zoom, you know, I'd be on conference calls and I'd walk into a, a meeting and people would say, oh, oh, you're, you're Mary Sharon? Like, oh, it's like, yes, I look like this and I talk like this. So I think for a long time, I put on a persona to become this person that I thought would be more consumable and more believable leadership. And then over time, especially as I got into the creative side of the world, and I realized that you really can't deliver brilliant original ideas unless you're in touch with your own emotions, um, which comes from vulnerability, right? Once I started to understand that vulnerability is like an actual superpower, I actually started to let those feelings in. Like I let it in when it felt like it was stinging and burning, and I wanted to cry because that actually makes me a better writer. And I would let the feelings in when I would feel like I was being oppressed or I was feeling misunderstood because that actually, when you think about like delivering consumer healthcare technology, how many people in the healthcare system feel unseen, feel dismissed? How many people are living lives with high impact chronic conditions that nobody can figure out? They're at home. They're lonely. It's affecting their social life. You know, people with disabilities what that feels like to try to convince someone that you're credible when that person has a profile of you that is not, I wouldn't be able to even do marketing campaigns. Well, if I couldn't tap into those own emotions myself. So I think part of dealing with it was letting go and letting it in, Uh, letting my hair be curly, even though I've been told by multiple mentors in my career that it'd be, I'd be better off if I straightened my hair because people would take me more seriously But I think all of that has made me a better creative leader, especially in a global economy, when you are trying to bring completely different personalities and profiles to the table and make sure that every single person at that table feels seen and feels respected and feels valued. If I didn't know what it was like to not feel that way, I think it'd be really tough for me to create these experiences that connect with people so closely.
0: You know what I mean? I do, and and what a beautiful way to sum up our episode today. So, before I let you go, I wanted to ask you a question: Where do you see yourself, and where do you see your industry in a month from now, in a year from now, and ten years from now?
1: Um, I see myself working um, more with my clients um, to build more purpose-driven brands. You know, I think look, there's never been a time like this in business, and there are so many more needs right now. And in a time like no other, we really need more diverse people to drive these ideas forward. People with diverse backgrounds, people of color, women, LGBTQ, parents, people who are single. And I think that um, harnessing our signature strengths is what's going to bring us all forward um, at a time where I feel like many of us actually feel like we're falling backwards, whether it's with relations or the economy or COVID, just a general sense of uncertainty. And I think that harnessing that actionable vulnerability is what's actually needed at this moment. And I think it's needed more in the future. So I think for me where I see myself in a month from now or in three years from now is helping other people really harness that actionable vulnerability and do it in a way where people are creating something truly new because COVID has laid a lot of things bare for us. And I think that there's really no other time in business where we have been called upon to be more innovative, more inclusive Um, and more, more driven. And so that's really where I see myself. I think where I see the industry hopefully is that we're bringing more empathy to the science and tech and we're bringing more of the human side of design and the purpose to tech, because I think tech, just like anything else, it has the power to be incredibly helpful and it has the power to be incredibly destructive. And so there's a difference, right. In technology with being a passive relayer of information of genomic information and being a company that is an active participant in the positive progress of genomics, right, to make it useful for everyone. And so I want to see more of that. And I believe very much so that as more people get into these fields from backgrounds that are unexpected, we're going to see more of that.
0: Well, thank you so, so much for your time, Mary and Sharon. We really enjoyed having you here on the Win Win podcast. Thanks, Zoya, so much. It's been fun. Thanks for listening to Win Win, brought to you by WIN, Women in Innovation, and myself, Zoya Kozakov. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit womenininnovation.co to learn more about our organization, programming, and other opportunities. And remember, when women innovate, we all win.